0: Let's open up our uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Um, We, yep, every time we break into a new chapter, it feels like a moment to celebrate. Uh, But we are going to be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. Luke chapter 10, if you need a Bible, that's what these gentlemen are are bringing by. Just raise your hand, we'll get one to you. I will say one thing, um, this... I know we didn't have, like Paul said, we didn't have much announcements for you guys this morning, but uh, I actually do try to, um, well, the bulletin in general is intended to give you a sense of the kind of heartbeat, the DNA of this church. And actually, this last couple weeks, I've been taking a look at what we had previously, some of the stuff just inherited from before. And pretty much rewrote most all of it. So, um, not because things have radically shifted or changed, it's because as I've been here and grown more of a heart for the city, for this church, more and more uh, vision for these various ministries has kind of taken shape. So I'd encourage you, uh, maybe you've never even read the little blurbs underneath some of those headings. Um, maybe you only focus in on the announcements. But I do want... Um, I try to highlight a few things that I think are key to our church and who we are, where we're going. So um, though we don't have many announcements today, perhaps you'd be interested in reading that at another point. But for now, we are in um, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read and then pray, and we will dive right in here this morning. After this, the Lord appointed... In the midst of wolves. Let's pray. God, I feel this morning as I feel every Sunday. Just that question that erupts from the Apostle Paul when he considers what you've called him to. Who is sufficient for these things? Who am I to unfold a text like this for you people? Who are we that we get to be called into your mission? That you would love us enemies though we have been. You would make us friends and not just friends sitting in your family room, but partners in kingdom advance. But not just partners in kingdom advance. Tangible illustrations to the world of your death and resurrection. God, I am asking this morning that you would set us on the narrow way. I know that the world would get us on a thousand different tracks, a thousand different missions, heading a thousand different ways. That all ultimately end in one place. But God, here today I'm praying. I'm praying that we would see, we would sense, we would hear the call from our sovereign Lord, the Lord of the Harvest. But the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And you're raising us up to go and make disciples in all of life, in all the world. God, would you do this some more? I pray you'd help me to be clear. I pray you'd help us all to hear, to feel, to obey, to move, to trust, cry out. We're here this morning because we need you, Jesus. We trust you won't let us down. Jesus' name, Amen. I'm just really going to dive right in here this morning. Sometimes I've got these lengthy uh, introductions uh, that my my sermon or my uh, seminary professors would kind of balk at. You know, you never want to have a 10, 15 minute introduction. Well, sometimes I do. Uh, other times I have no introduction, which again, my seminary professors would balk at. Oh, you got to get the hook in them in the beginning and get into the main points. Listen, I'm just going to give you my headings for this morning and we're going to dive in. Okay. Uh, Our text for this morning is composed of three verses, and from these three verses, I'm going to bring out three things Uh, first, and you'll see them there on your handout, but first from verse 1 comes kingdom expansion, and then from verse 2 comes first principles, and then finally from verse 3, we're going to see what I would call eloquent wounds, um, the first one 's going to go quickly we 're just going to blaze right through that and we 're going to spend the majority of our time on the last two, just to give you a heads up so verse one there and what i 'm calling kingdom expansions um, if you 've been with us for a little while now, hopefully you recall that we actually referred to these verses in Luke ten. Back when we were in Luke 9, I know some of you, because it takes me so long to get through a chapter, probably uh, some of you have not uh, been with us for those messages. So I'm going to recount a little bit of that here just for a moment. But if you remember, Luke 9, 1 through 6 deals with the commissioning and sending of the 12 apostles. Okay, the 12 are commissioned and they're sent out in terms and in ways very similar to what we see here in Luke 10, which is why I brought it up at that point. But in Luke 9, 1 through 6, it's the 12. Now Luke 10, 1 through 3 and beyond, we see it's not just the 12. But now there are 72 or some manuscripts. It's a tricky manuscript issue, but some um, of the Greek manuscripts have 70, whatever the case, there are a number of reasons we could uh, talk about that. Um, But in either case, 72 now are being uh, added to this mission, commissioned by Jesus and sent by him. I made this point before, and I'm going to begin with it here again this morning, ministry or engagement in the mission of God is not just for the professionals. It's not just for kind of the elite who have been to seminary or the pastor who has a degree or that guy who's read through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology in his spare time and seems like a all-star. The mission is for every single one of us. The catchphrase from those messages last time in Luke 9 was that every saint is sent. That if you are a Christian, you are in fact a missionary, a sent one of God. Now, conjecture, and I'm only going to cover this super uh, quickly here, but... um scholars, there's this kind of conjecture that's made in terms of what, what what's this number really symbolized or does it symbolize anything at all? 70, 72? Um, I'm going to give you a few of the options here and then just give you the bottom line uh, before we move to, to point 2. Uh, some people might look at the number 70 or 72 and they actually want to draw it back to Genesis 10 which is where God, uh, Moses essentially, God through Moses, uh, is tracing all the nations of the earth from the sons of Noah. And on that list in the Hebrew manuscripts, there are 70 names, 70 nations in the Greek Old Testament, 72. But the idea would be, therefore, that Jesus, in his mission... And what he's come to do, not just for the 12 apostles representing his mission to the 12 tribes of Israel, not just for Israel, but now for all the nations of the earth. That's what Jesus is getting started here. Something that's not just going to the 12 tribes, but going to the 70, 72 nations of the world. Others want to take that number and draw it back to Numbers 11 in the Old Testament, which is where Moses uh, cries out to God, I can't bear the weight of these people. And God says, okay, I'm going to put some of your spirit on uh, on uh, 70 others. And perhaps again, 72, because there are two guys off on the side, if you read the story, that also are given this this spirit from God. To help shoulder the burden, to help go with Moses in his mission and ministry. So the idea here would be that uh, Jesus, therefore, is is kind of the new Moses, and he is he is uh, now raising up more to do the work of the ministry and sending them out on mission. I just kind of want to say, I think both have legitimate points. And I think at uh, at bottom, here's what we come out with. Jesus, in our text, is uh, expanding both his reach, meaning he's, he's, he's got now 70 more guys and they're going into more and more places and villages, towns, bringing the gospel. So he's expanding his reach, but he's also, like Numbers 11, expanding his team. Not just 12 now, but... Seventy, seventy-two guys, and more as we see, we come to realize that every saint, you and I, are sent. So the question then that confronts us immediately here in this first verse of chapter 10 is this. Have you been leaving the mission, the ministry stuff to the professionals? Have you been kind of thinking, well... I'm not qualified for that. I'm not called for that. Maybe there are certain things you're not called or perhaps qualified for. But sometimes out of apathy, laziness, sin, other times perhaps out of fear, we can kind of set ourselves on the sidelines when God is saying, no, 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 you're in the game. And we ought to be seeking him. What do you have for me? We ought to be missionaries in our home and in our neighborhood and in our workplace and in our city and in our world. The Great Commission is not just for a few, the proud, you know, the the real disciples. It's for the church. It's for you and for me. Do you have a heart, in other words, for the harvest? So second, Point then, coming from verse number two, what I would call first principles. Now, it is not only Christ's concern that we go. Certainly he wants us to go, but if we go, he is concerned that we go in the right way. He wants to show us how we ought to go, and that's really kind of what these next two points are going to flesh out. For us, as we move into verse two, what we notice and what I want to bring to your attention is the sequence of thought. The logic here, the way this verse plays out, because it's incredibly insightful and we might not initially see it. Jesus turns to his disciples, or he turns to his disciples here and he says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, so there's this opening statement, man, there is a great harvest need. The laborers are few. Therefore, what? What would be your next line? What are you still doing here with me? There's so much work to be done out there. Go, go, go get it done. But we have to wait a whole other verse before we get to the command to go. Go your way comes in verse 3. There's something that Jesus inserts between his his, uh, explanation of, his identification of the great harvest need, and then his command to go. There is something in between. What is it? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Now that's insightful. There's great need. There's so much to do and so few to do it. Therefore, go out and get it done. Pray to the only one who can make our doing, our going effective in the first place. is Jesus appointing them and sending them out in the harvest absolutely but he knows that they have to get something straight before they go he's establishing what i've called here first principles missionaries first principles this is where it begins this is where you start if you want to be fruitful in the harvest you need the uh, you need to first earnestly plead With the Lord of the harvest. Let's think about what that term, the Lord of the harvest, means. That's awesome. It doesn't just mean that that God owns the harvest. And you got to make sure he's cool with you trespassing on his land. It does mean that. It means he owns the harvest, but it means more, I think. It means uh, that he is the decisive factor in, in causing the harvest. He is the decisive factor in raising up laborers and sending them out into the harvest. He is the decisive factor in making the whole missionary enterprise fruitful at all. He is the Lord over it. And if we bypass the Lord to get to the harvest, thinking that we're so needed and so important and our words are going to convert. And if we could just get out there, the nations would come that we haven't even begun to understand what it means to be a missionary or to be a Christian for that matter. First principles. Earnest prayer. Prayer. To the Lord of the harvest. This is the sort of thing that Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7 when he's talking about his and Apollos' ministry and he utilizes the same imagery. I've gone to this text before, but it's particularly relevant at this point because he uses the same harvest imagery. I want you to hear this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each, as the Lord of the harvest assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Did you hear that? He's going to say it again in case you missed it. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He said, man, are we laboring in the harvest? I mean, he could go on, and he will with the Corinthians. All the stuff he's done, the sleepless nights, the anxieties, the sweat, the labor, the blood, the sweat, the tears, right? He could go through all that. Is he in the harvest? Is he laboring? Absolutely. But does he think for a moment that all of his labor is somehow decisive in bringing about fruit? No, he doesn't. He says, at the end of the day, I'm just a servant. I'm an instrument. Anything that I accomplish is that which has been assigned to me by the Lord of the harvest. At the end of the day, he who plants, he who waters, nothing, but only God who causes the growth. Paul gets it. Better hope he does because he wrote half our New Testament, but (laughs) if he doesn't get it, there's no hope for us. But he gets it. There's the Lord of the harvest. And the missionary task begins not by hitting the streets, but by hitting your knees. Hitting your knees. If we see the great harvest need and run ahead of God in attempt to meet it, we will spend buckets of sweat but see none of the fruit. When we do this, What it betrays, and I am guilty of this all the time, but when we run ahead of God, we see the need, we think we are the decisive factor in bringing change or helping or saving or whatever it is. When we do this sort of thing, it betrays a sort of self-reliance that we have, it betrays a misplaced faith in what we can accomplish. And God is always, in love, going to kind of slow us down on that track and and, and lead us back to the place of abiding prayer. The place where we recognize, okay, wait a minute, I'm not the decisive factor, it's you. And I'll go when you say go. I'll talk when you say talk. Until then, I know. It's you and me here. I mean, there was something that I read this last week in Colossians. And um, it was in Colossians 4. Paul's talking about Epaphras. And I don't have it in my notes, I wasn't planning on talking about it, but it just moved me because uh, it talks about Epaphras and how this guy, even though he was however many, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 miles away from the Colossian church, he is, Paul says, on his knees laboring. Toiling, sweating, as it were, in prayer for that church's sanctification and growth and maturity and wisdom, love, all the fruits of Christ. In other words, Epaphras gets that prayer is work, it's labor, and that stuff happens, stuff changes when you talk to the Lord of the harvest, the one who's responsible for bringing fruit in the first place. I don't often feel that way. I feel like uh, I'm going to see no fruit in my church's life unless I get in there really... Say something. Unless my sermon's really powerful, nothing's going to change. Or unless that counseling session, we can get into some of those things, and I really say this truth I've been planning or preparing, nothing's going to change. Man, I was convicted because how much time do I spend planning, preparing to talk versus just praying that God would do? You know? Anyways god is going to again and again bring us back to this place of abiding prayer and and the interesting thing is we even are going to see it again and again in luke chapter 10 jesus is having to do this here with his disciples all the time and it's right here in the immediate context i just wanted to bring this out for you in verses 17 to 20 uh, I don't know if you remember, but these seventy-two disciples—we're going to see this probably in two weeks. These these seventy-two disciples return from their mission, and they're just—they're pumped up. They are ecstatic. They are stoked. They just accomplished a ton for the kingdom. The demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. They're like, man, they're walking on on, on clouds. This was amazing. Look at what we did. Look at what we can accomplish in Christ. Okay. Jesus slows that down and look at what he says to him in verse 20. He leads him back essentially to the place of abiding prayer to where all this comes from in the first place. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's leading them back to first principles. In other words, Anything that you do or accomplish out there in the field, any fruit that you see results from the one that you know, from the one that you trust in, from the one you rely on. Your name is in heaven. That's where your joy is, not in all the stuff you can do and accomplish. That's secondary stuff that flows from the one you know. Don't mistake. Don't reverse that. Get it out of order. He realigns them to first principles. Or later, at the very end of Luke chapter 10... Uh, some of you guys, at least here in Silicon Valley, we especially need to know this. I can't wait to get to this text, the one dealing with Martha and, and Mary, where Jesus is kind of at this little dinner party, and Martha's running around, you know, like a good host, trying to, like me and my wife, when people are over at our house, you know, running around trying to balance trays and clean up stuff and and, and get the table ready and get all the food, and this comes out, you know, I don't think they have ovens, but you know what I mean. You're picturing it, right? I'm doing too much, probably. Uh, balancing all this stuff and then she sees mary sitting there at jesus's feet and she goes what's that all about i could use some help in here i just burned the bread smoke's coming from the from the stove what's this and jesus leads martha back to first principles he says this in verses 41 and 42 martha martha You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. In other words, serving and laboring and doing all this is good. It's good, but we can't let it get out of order. It's not the one necessary thing. The one necessary thing is what Mary is doing, which is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. It's the place of abiding in Christ, the place of abiding prayer. That's what all work, all fruitful labor is going to flow from. The rest will be just anxious toil. Even if you see stuff, even if you see results, it's still going to be anxiety ridden because it's from your own effort and your own sweat. You've got to keep it up. The irony In all of this, at least when I consider my own struggles with prayerlessness, is that it is often my concern for pragmatism that leads me away from prayer. It's often my concern for bearing fruit, seeing results that uh, leads me not to prayer, but away from prayer. I want to see results now. I want to cross things off my list. I want to be able to look at the end of my day and not go, man, what a failure I am. No, I want to go, check that off, check that off, check that off, check, win. We just won the day. I want to be able to do that. And my desire for pragmatism sometimes leads me away from prayer rather than to it, because quite frankly, we think that prayer doesn't work. We don't really see what's happening in the spiritual realm, or we don't connect the dots to what goes on in our lives as a result, or what God has promised. And so we might tip our hat to it for a few minutes in the morning while we sip our coffee. That's about all. Let me just put you to the test. I'm going to put you on the spot here for a moment. ask a few questions for you just to reflect on. If you just lost your job, And you need to find a new one. What do you think would be the most effective use of your time? An hour spent sending out resumes? Or an hour spent on your knees in prayer? Now, I'll come back and and, and nuance this for you, but I think this is important to think about. What do you think is the most effective use of your time? An hour spent sending out resumes or an hour spent on your knees in prayer to the Lord of all? If you're struggling with your singleness and you desperately want to find that significant other, what do you think is the most uh, significant or, or, or the best use of your time? An hour spent perusing dating websites? Or... An hour spent on your knees in prayer to the Lord of all. If you are struggling with another person, maybe your spouse, maybe your kid, maybe someone at work or in your home group, and you really want to see them turn from a certain sin or something that you feel like you need to talk about because it's been hard or it's bugging you, bothering you, and you you want to move through it together. If you're struggling with another person, let me ask you, what do you think is the most effective use of your time? An hour spent planning, thinking, preparing what you will say when you get to that person? Or an hour spent on your knees in prayer to the Lord of all? I mean, you do right. You you have that right. Here's what I'm going to say when I see that person. I'm going to oh, let me make sure I get my all my thoughts in line and I get, know exactly what I'm going to so that when I'm ready, I'm I, you know when the time comes, I'm ready to to bring it out. That will really change. That will be really effective. Man, how much time do we give to that versus this first principles Jesus is talking about prayer, talking to the Lord of all or if you want to see your family member or your neighbor reached for Christ, what do you think will be the most effective use of your time? An hour spent talking to them about the truths of the gospel. Laying out the case, the arguments, the evidence, undermining oppositions to it. Or an hour spent on your knees in prayer for the salvation of their souls as you talk to the Lord of the harvest and plead with him. To do something now. Don't hear me. This is why I said I was going to nuance it. I, don't hear me pin against one another the the praying uh, and the doing. I'm not saying that I I recognize that our doing flows from our praying and how are they going to be saved unless they hear and all of these sorts of things. I'm just trying to establish what I think Jesus is trying to establish in the heart of his missionaries in Luke 10. And that is there is something that comes first and something that should permeate the entire aspect, the entire process of our doing, namely prayer and reliance on the Lord of the harvest, the one who can alone make us fruitful in everything that we put our hands to. If we miss that, if we kind of touch prayer in the morning and then run off, well, that, that's no different than cutting, you know, cutting the the flower, cutting the, the 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 branch from the tree, and expecting it to continue bearing fruit throughout the week. It's just the leaves are going to wither, fruit's going to rot, fall off. It's not connected. It's not abiding anymore in the vine, the branch, the tree, Jesus. Now, I I said that our prayerlessness for the sake of pragmatism is ironic uh, because um, Jesus, in our text, is actually grounding. Did you notice this? He's grounding his call, his command to pray in his concern for fruit bearing, for pragmatism, as it were. He is saying, because we are so concerned about bearing fruit, about seeing fruit in the harvest, we cannot neglect this uh, fundamental task. Pragmatism and our concern for fruit bearing results, whatever, should not lead us away from prayer, but towards it. That's Jesus' argument. That's what's so amazing. Prayer is not contrary to pragmatism, but critical to it. In other words, prayer, according to Jesus, works. Charles Spurgeon understood this. There are so many stories floating around about this man. I, I struggle sometimes to find the sources. There's like this whole apocryphal thing about Charles Spurgeon. and I, I, But I found it. I'm like, whether this is true or not, I don't know. Uh, I think it is. Reliable ministers quoted it. I couldn't find the source. Either way, this is a beautiful image. And I wanted to, I wanted to bring this out. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in um, 1834 to 1892, short life, amazing impact, is known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a Baptist minister in England who saw enormous blessings from God upon his ministry. It's not an exaggeration to say that thousands came to Christ through his preaching. Some of services, uh, some of his services drew as many as 10,000 people at a time. But Spurgeon never took credit for the success of his ministry. Instead, he always pointed to, and and this is, this is the, the amazing thing, the hundreds of people who came before services and prayed for God's blessing. He said any success he had came from God in answer to their prayers. Spurgeon was often fond of calling these prayer gatherings the church's boiler room. This guy goes on to explain. In Spurgeon's time, steam was the power source of the day. Boiler rooms were the powerhouses, the driving forces of everything, from vast machines in factories to household heating systems. Boiler rooms, however, were not pleasant places to visit. They were functional, dirty, and hot, often tucked away in the basement. Likewise, Spurgeon saw the prayers of his people as the spiritual power behind his preaching and ministry. So he would have these people in the basement, he called the boiler room, praying during, before and during his services as he would preach, aware, in other words, that the only way we're going to bear fruit here is if we're beseeching, earnestly pleading with the Lord of the Harvest. So the question, therefore, for us is, is, Is how do we see prayer? Is prayer the powerhouse of my Christian life? Is it the boiler room of my mission and ministry? Is it what keeps the heat up and the lights turned on? Or is it something we get around to here and there when we have a moment? So this is first principle stuff. This is what Jesus wants his missionaries to understand before they even begin. And he'll keep bringing them back to it. Bringing us back to it. It's why, as I've said throughout Luke, we're going to see Jesus never leaves that. I mean, Jesus stands everywhere we fall, right? What do you see? Prayer. And characterizing him at every point of his ministry. Sustaining him. He knows. He's trying to help us see it as well. Now, third uh, coming from verse 3 now, I wanted to bring out this idea of eloquent wounds. Eloquent wounds. Um, having established this first principle kind of stuff, we then come to verse 3. And now we see the command to go your way. But now we need to further notice what is going to characterize us in our going. In other words, what is the manner in which we go? Obviously, we understand now it is prayerful, it is abiding in Jesus. But what else can we learn about the manner in which we are sent, the manner in which we go? When we look here closely, we realize very quickly it is not what we would expect, nor is it what we would like. Go your way, Jesus says. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I just couldn't get over it. You're wondering why I'm only doing three verses? It's because I couldn't get past this verse. I just couldn't get over this. Jesus is sending these guys out, and he says, Listen, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I don't know if you have seen. I've never played football. Okay, if you can tell. I mean, I know I'm pretty bulky. I got the, you know, I look like a meat. You know, I look like a tennis player, right? That's what I played. Tink. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Never played football, but I've seen some of the movies. Okay, I've seen some of those those classic football movies, and I've seen those those scenes where you know it's the night of the big game. The bleachers are filling, all the towns come out. It's always a small town in the south somewhere. All the towns come out, they're filling the bleachers. You can tell there's all this excitement and energy, right? The, the players are in the locker room, kind of prepping, getting ready. They're, they're a little nervous, anxious, kind of doing their stretches, swigging their, their, their Gatorade or whatever. Got their headphones on. And then the coach, a few minutes before it's time to go out, right, gathers them up, gathers them up. All of a sudden, the soundtrack starts to play, you know? This is when you oh something's going to happen here. These inspiring words come forth from the coach about what he knows they're capable of and how they've been living for this moment and it's going to be amazing and 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 even these big meathead guys start seeing like tears like flowing from their eye like wow this is look at this it's it's inspiring it's lifting them up. In other words, by the time this coach is done, they are ready to go out. They're ready for the game. Now, back to our text. I mean, if we could just say it, uh, Jesus' whole pep talk here, it kind of stinks. It's not what you would... I just don't know if you're going to feel all warm and fuzzy and inspired after hearing what he has to say. It's kind of like he says this, okay, uh, guys, well, when I was coming in a little earlier, and I saw the other team practicing, kind of strapping on their gear and whatnot. Um, I don't know how to say this, but listen, their their arms are bigger than your thighs, okay? And uh, they are taller than the Redwoods my family hiked in last week. And uh, uh, did you hear their quarterback signed a few days ago with the NFL Um, let's just be honest. When you leave this locker room, you go out like boys among men. Or you go out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, if you're a part of that pep talk, if you're a part of that huddle at this point, you kind of want to freeze the frame and go, hold up. I'm not sure I want to be a part of this mission if that's what it entails. Lamb in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound good. I know I was praying to the Lord of the harvest. Maybe I'll stay here on my knees and let somebody else go out into the harvest if that's what it means. Aren't you a bit hesitant when you really stop and think about it? When you really hear that call, lamb in the midst of wolves. And don't we want to object at this point as well? Don't we want to say, me, a lamb? I thought you were the lamb of God. I thought you were the one sent the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That's not me. That's not my job. I thought that's what you were sent to do. Why are you sending me out as a lamb? I thought you were supposed to kind of do all that stuff so I don't have to. I want to take the the more than conquerors kind of piece from Romans 8. I, I, I want to take the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me kind of peace. That would inspire me for the big game. Talk to me about that side of it. Your victory and your triumph. Don't talk to me about lamb in the midst of wolves and suffering and shame. I don't want that peace. I thought you took that so I didn't have to. I love what John Piper Has to say on this point, let me just read this to you. Christ died for us so that we would not have to die for sin. That's true. Not so that we would not have to die in love for others. Christ bore the punishment of our sin so that our death and suffering are never punishment from god so no we are not making atonement we are not lambs that take away the sins of the world but he goes on to say the call to suffer with christ is not a call to bear our sins the way he bore them but a call to love the way he loved that's the key line (laughs) Because He took my guilt and my punishment and reconciled me to God as my Father, I do not need to cling any longer to the comforts of earth in order to be content. I am free to let things go for the sake of making the supremacy of God's worth known. So no, I am not sent out as a lamb as an offering for sin. I'm not to be an offering for sin or to bear sin in the way Jesus bore it. But I am sent out as a lamb so that I might love others in the way that Jesus loved me. I'm sent out into the world not to be an offering for sin, but to be a representation, a tangible illustration of the one who was an offering for sin. So loved the world that he gave his life on that cross for me and for you. Are willing to die? Love, in other words, like a lamb in the midst of wolves, declares to the world that Jesus is alive, and he loves he loves them as well. So the point, I think, in all of this, even though it is a tough one, is that self-sacrificial suffering in love for those we are trying to reach with the gospel is a critical component of our mission in our ministry. I know how critical it is, especially, I would say, in our day. We live in an age, we live in a day, right, where we're kind of... Post-modern, sort of relativistic thinking is settled in. We don't care a lot of times anymore, our culture doesn't, at least, about words and talk and truth. Something out there. We want something we can see, something we can touch, something we can taste. I've been reading articles lately talking about how the millennial generation, one of their core values, is authenticity. Authenticity. Meaning, they don't care so much how well you can talk or how crafted your arguments are, but they do care about, are you the real thing? And let me tell you something, what Jesus is calling us to here is to be the real thing. Not just talking about his cross, but bearing our own as we talk to others about it. Now this should be... This whole call to be lambs in the midst of wolves should be relatively unsurprising to us if we've been following along with Jesus in in Luke's gospel up to this point. I mean, this was the whole point of of large portions of Luke 9, even what just came before that we saw last week. What has Jesus been trying to do in Luke 9 but get his people to see a few key things? Okay, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Yes, the Messiah is going down. In love for the world. And now, here's another key point. You, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, have to take up your cross daily as well. This was the whole reason for the three we saw last week and what Jesus is is doing in these encounters. Okay, you really want to follow me? You realize what that's going to cost you. Are you ready to go all in? Are you going to put your hand to the plow and not look back? Why is he saying these things? Because he knows Luke 10 is coming. And the mission is to be lambs in the midst of wolves. The mission is to lay our lives down in love for our enemies, just like Jesus laid his life down for us. But this call should be unsurprising to us for other reasons as well. When we consider the, the the scope of the New Testament, and when what we see is that when Jesus calls anybody, when he commissions anyone, he it, it seems like he simultaneously tells them what they're going to suffer in the that is going to that they're going to bear a cross in it. That as they are sent out to proclaim his cross, they're going to bear their own. We could think about the two prominent apostles at this point, namely Peter and Paul. These give us some of the more paradigmatic examples. But I wonder if you remember Peter's what we could call his commissioning. John 21, Jesus has died, risen from the dead, shows up to Peter at the edge of the Sea of Galilee there, and he says, Listen, Peter, do you love me? Here's what I want you to do: feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Go out, tend to my people. Go, I'm sending you on a mission. Be a minister of the gospel. But then he just kind of nonchalantly, after saying that, comes out in in verses 18 and 19 of John 21 and essentially says this, Oh, and by the way, this mission is going to cost you your life. It's going to come soon enough, sooner than you want. People are gonna tie you up. They're gonna take you place you didn't want to go. They're gonna stretch out your hands, kinda like mine were you saw there at Calvary. And they're gonna kill you. The connection is how are you gonna minister to my sheep? How are you gonna feed? How are you gonna bring the gospel to my people? You're gonna love them to death. You're going to be a tangible representation to them of all the truths you're talking about to me because I'm alive and I'm in you and I'm enabling this sort of this sort of ministry in you. They're going to see that I am alive because they see you're willing to die love for them. Paul, it's the same thing. Paul's commissioning uh, there on the road to Emmaus. The risen Lord appears to him in glory and sets him on a completely different path, if you remember. And Paul is still shaken up from the experience. He can't see. He's in this this other place and he's praying, we're told. And Jesus shows up to a guy named Ananias and says, man, I need you to go to Paul. I have some things I want you to tell him. This is what he tells Ananias. He says, go Zach's nine, 15 and 16 go for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must what suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to bring the gospel to the, to the nations. Oh, and by the way, I need to show him how much he's going to suffer in the process. I need to show him that you don't just talk about the cross. You, you put it on your back. This is why Paul would later write to the Colossians. Colossians 1.24 And I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That should already stagger us. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, I realize that that statement is enigmatic. And I don't have time to go into it all. But I will try to help you understand it by saying this. Do you remember Thomas? You remember doubting, Thomas? Remember the guy who, when all the disciples are pumped that Jesus is risen from the dead and they're telling him about it, man, he's alive, he's risen. He said, ah, well, I happen to be using the restroom when he showed up. That's convenient. I'll believe he's alive when I can actually see, when I can touch his wounds. Then I'll know it's Christ. Then I'll know he's raised. So Jesus says, okay, shows up, see, touch. Thomas falls on his face and worships. Now, Jesus has ascended to the Father. Sends his spirit down. Calls his church, his people, his saints, you and I, his body. The physical representation, manifestation of Jesus on the earth. So here's the idea. What is lacking in Jesus' afflictions? Well, for the Thomases of the world, they can't put their fingers in it. His physical body is not here. They can't see. they They can't touch it. I'll believe he's alive when I can see that. How are they supposed to see that? Brothers and sisters, they're supposed to see it in yours and my life. Lambs in the midst of wolves, lambs pointing to the lamb. They are supposed to be able to trace in my wounds the reality that Jesus is alive and he loves them way more than I do. But this kind of love we have is an apologetic for the reality of the resurrected Lord. This world is full of Thomas's. Are we willing? Are we ready to be lambs? Do we view suffering as a hindrance to our mission? Or do we see it as a means of advancing our mission? That's the only way I can make sense of Paul rejoicing. In his sufferings, he sees so much that's happening as a result. Do we spend all of our time and our energy and our resources trying to avoid suffering or hear me? This is huge. Or. Do we so spend our time, our energy, our resources in the cause of Christ, for the cause of the spread of the gospel, in love for others, that we cannot help but encounter suffering? You get that, right? Any true expression of love, any true love is really going to, at the end of the day, call for your suffering, Because you've got to give of yourself. You've got to forego your needs to meet theirs. You have to endure with their weaknesses and their sins. You've got to bear their burdens. True love is going to move towards and cannot help but encounter suffering. Are we willing? Are we willing to not just speak about the lamb, but to be a lamb pointing to the lamb. I suppose I'll end there. I had a list of ways. that. No, I'll give you this and then we'll end quickly. Here's a few ways this could take shape in your life. I want you to be able to see what this could look like this lamb like ministry it's flowers brought to the neighbor who just lost her husband even though you know she's been bad mouthing you with others uh, I'm on the block around the block it's an open wallet for that family member who's fallen on hard times even though you're barely getting by yourself It's a warm embrace of that homeless man who often camps out on the sidewalk in front of your office. Even though you know he's dirty, perhaps his funk is going to get on you, but you want him to know that Christ loves him, even in that place. It's a meal shared with others around your table, even though you know they have different religious, political, ethical perspectives than you. You just want to serve them, to listen to them, to love them towards Christ. Even let them abuse you in your positions. Then wrap back around and bless them in Jesus' name. Perhaps it's walking or running with real options, like, like Paul was saying at the beginning on May 12th standing for life and the rights of the unborn and love for them in a political cultural climate that will despise us for doing so, especially here in California. It's hearing and answering the call to go. I was on the Joshua Project website this last week and, Over 3 billion people considered unreached with the gospel. Did you hear that? 3 billion people. And perhaps you hear that and you link that up with Romans 10, where Paul said, how are they going to call on whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone goes and preaches? And how are they going to preach unless someone is sent? Maybe that someone is me. Wow. You look at your comfortable Bay Area lifestyle and you say, wow, well, maybe it's time to go. Maybe it's time to be a lamb in the midst of wolves. Cause Jesus is alive and I want them to see it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to us. Paul rejoices in his suffering because not only does it advance the mission, not only is our suffering a means, a vehicle for kingdom advance, it's also a way that we share fellowship with you. God, you want to conform us to your image, which isn't just externally. It's also something that happens in our hearts with love as we as our hearts break in love for others. God, you want to give us fellowship with you in that place where we share your burdens for the lost. Where our heart breaks in love and our bodies break in love accordingly. God, there's so much we can learn of you if we follow you in that place. So much more joy, strangely, we can find there. But we do also find that it advances your kingdom, opens people's eyes to the reality of your resurrection life. God, we pray that you would come alive in us here today. We confess our false reliances, we confess our false hopes, we lay it all down and we grab a hold of You. Take up our cross to follow You, God. We want to bear fruit in the field for the glory of Your name. Lord of the harvest, Would you grant that. It's in Your name we ask these things. Amen.